last weekend, um, I was able to get away for 24 hours with my wife, without our children. It was amazing. Um, yeah. And I'm grateful there were a few of you and part of this congregation who really helped that happen for us. And, and I was looking forward to it. I couldn't remember the last time we had done this. And, and so I, I got a little obsessed and I started researching just different things going on uh, throughout the entire city of Los Angeles. I was looking south, I was looking north, and I started to get overwhelmed with all the options in front of us. And so I, I narrowed down to about three or four places and, and a lot of opportunities and things we could do and concerts and this was free and that was free. And, and I thought, I, I can't make this decision on my own. And so I interviewed my wife and I asked her a bunch of questions and what I was convinced of was that as she gave me answers to the, the brilliant questions that I've asked, that one of the, one place out of all the four that I was looking at would really come to mind. And then I asked her questions and it really hit me. Uh, it hit me that uh, none of her answers were what I expected. My questions were about what kind of things we're gonna do and restaurants you wanna eat at. And what it dawned on me, it dawned on me as she was answering my questions is, is that we have had quite a fall in our home. Uh, both of us starting new jobs, ki two kids at two different schools, sports, all the activities that make up the Matisich family. And so the thought of being away for 24 hours at this stage of our life wasn't about what are we gonna do, it's how are we gonna stop. And, 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 and so all of a sudden restaurants didn't matter. <laughs> Activities didn't matter. What we were really looking for, what my wife was really advocating for was a pause. It was a pause from life, not add more. And so when we checked into our hotel and I brought out my license plate and they looked at it and I said, you've come all the way from Pasadena. And I said, well, we don't get to Glendale that often. <laughs> Seriously, we went to Glendale. It was great. We love your city. Some of you, I think we'll come back occasionally. Um, that's where we went, and it was, it was incredible because we needed the pause. You know, you know you need the pause too. Some of you are back from college, or you're visiting from far away, and the first thing you do when you get home is just sleep, or just do nothing, because life is fast and life is full. That's not limited to my family. I, I think the pause is something we crave in life, but oftentimes what gives us the best pause in life are these seasons and moments of extraordinary love. You know that feeling when, when it's your wedding or somebody close to you and, and it's the whole weekend, right? It's that for, for those days or for even that evening of a wedding, everything else fades away because the, the pause that extraordinary love gives us, that we get to be fully present somewhere that makes the rest of life feel a little bit softer, a little bit less loud. I think that same kind of pause comes in the extraordinary love of a, of a child coming into our lives, into our world. And, and, and that, that pause that comes, now for parents, it's more of a haze, right? But, but all of a sudden, like, the other things just don't matter the same way. And honestly, the pause that comes from extraordinary love of when we lose someone. And Lake Avenue Church, this has been a season for us where it's not a pause that many of us would choose. So whether it be the grieving of Anne Dashiel, I was at a memorial service this week for Celeste Coleman. George Turgeon passed away a week ago today. These, these incredible moments of loss give us, a, in a way, a pause because it's connected to extraordinary love. This extraordinary 
person and moment that when it's put in perspective to everything else, it's just we, get, we can get swept up and lost in it. So even with death, even with death, these experiences of extraordinary love allow us to pause, to reflect, to enjoy, to grieve, to soak in the fullness of what is happening in ways that really tell us what life is all about. I want you to know my prayer for us for the next many minutes together is that you would receive a pause. That wherever you are in life, and I am fully aware that it's the 22nd, I have my own list of things to do. Some of you have places to get to today. You have a party tonight. You have shopping to do. You have grocery shopping to do. There's last-minute wrapping. There's all kinds of things on many of your lists, and they're important. But for a moment to breathe and to allow the Word of God to serve as a pause for you, and I think what can happen And what I pray happens, what I've been praying all week, is that as we allow this moment of God's word to give us pause, that it might actually bring out the next few days in a very different way, a a more full way, to simply pause and find rest in the scriptures. Because what I think we're going to see in the verse we're going to read in a moment is that the pause, this pause can be connected to extraordinary love, connected to intimacy, And that if we embrace the pause, soak in this message just for a while today, that what we're going to experience is what we all need, which is Christmas. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Just one verse today, uh, verse 14 from John's first chapter. And he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the 20th chapter of John, he gives us the whole reason he's written this book. It's verse verse 31 when he says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So just to be really clear, John is not writing an account of Jesus' life just so that we have history. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he is writing these things down so that others might find that to be true and to have their lives be changed. John is writing so that anyone who hears his story would believe in Jesus, and the entire book pushes towards this purpose. Now, for the last three weeks, we have been in the prologue, the first 18 verses of the book of John. And in many ways, as Pastor Chuck did so well last week, this is that that preamble. This is the teaser. What John is putting in these 18 verses is, is meant, in a sense, to draw you and me in to say, tell me more. And so up to this point, we've heard Jesus described as the Word, We've heard Jesus described as one who brings life. We've heard Jesus described as one who brings light into darkness. And we've, we've seen, and even last week, that there's some who encountered Jesus and believed and they were, became children of God, and yet there were others who couldn't see. And what we have just read in verse 14 is the most critical verse of the, all 18 verses. It is his thesis statement. It is the most important part of 18. So, so what I want you to do if you have your Bible is just underline that because if you want one thing out of these 18 verses to keep coming back to, it's found in what we have just read. 
And there's a trap I need to confess to you in preaching. There is a trap in preaching where I could go into this verse because it is so thick. It is such a thesis statement that we could get into all kinds of theological discussions and all kinds of rabbit trails and all kinds that are super worthy of all of that, but they're just not where I think the Spirit has led me today. On the 22nd of December, three days before Christmas, because what we can find in this verse is the essence of Christmas. So there's so much that we can come to understand about what it means when John says that Jesus is the Word. In, in, in some sense, uh, G, the Word means, uh, means that there, there's rational reason in this world. That's Jesus. Or wisdom personified. That's found in Jesus. Or the redemptive spoken act of God throughout the Bible. That's Jesus. But the main truth of verse 14 the pinnacle about what John is writing about in this prologue, it's his thesis, and it's simply this, is that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and that there's something that in the midst of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us that, that Jesus reveals about God and reveals about ourselves. So I want to suggest to you and talk about, there are three truths Three truths about Jesus that we can see in this one verse of the Bible. There's probably more, but these are the three we're going to talk about today. The first truth is this. Notice this. Jesus became. It says right at the beginning, the Word became flesh. Jesus became human. The Word became flesh. Let's unpack this. Let's go back real quick. Verses 1 through 3. John starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Before we find out that this Word becomes flesh, what do we know about the Word so far? The Word, verse 1, Jesus was with God in the beginning. Verse 2, Jesus was God. Wrap your minds around that. Now remember that John teaches that Jesus has always existed. From the beginning, it's always, Jesus has always been. In fact, verse 3 is going to affirm this when he says, without him nothing was made that has been made. And why is that important at Christmas, brothers and sisters? Jesus was not made. Jesus does the making. So when our Christmas narratives tell a story like this, where in our minds we go, before Christmas morning, there was no Jesus. That God plus Mary equals the beginning of Jesus. That's actually not accurate to the story of Jesus. That's not what John is telling us. Jesus has always existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And, and this, this same Word is the, is the spoken, active, redemption voice of God, action of God in the Bible. So what we celebrate at Christmas isn't the beginning of Jesus' life. What we celebrate at Christmas is what verse 14 tells us, that the Word became flesh. It's the becoming flesh is what Christmas is about. So, Jesus is God. Jesus was with God. Jesus made everything that has ever been made. And that same Jesus, verse 14, has now become flesh. The Greek word here is a word sarx. When I was learning Greek in undergrad, I would have all these kind of memory triggers to remember the word. You, you've done this as well. So when it came to sarx, I would go like this. This is how I would remember sarx. I would go, sarx! Like, like you got caught coming out of the shower by a stranger. <laughs> so I remember like taking my test, like, Sarks, like cover up, cover up. 
And it what, come to find out, it wasn't just a useful way to remember a Greek word. It actually carries, that kind of action carries the scandal of this kind of word that John is using. This is a shocking word to those who are reading this. Sarks, I mean, Jesus became like flesh, like human flesh, like cover up flesh, like shame flesh, like flesh flesh. So this, this trigger I have of covering up would have been uh, mind-blowing to those who are reading this, that Jesus becomes flesh? So why is he using this word? It's a scandalous word. It's a risky word. And its use here in the scripture is shocking. Uh, for one, notice what this is saying about God. It says that God is not just some force. He's not some principle out there in the universe. God is not some, some light within us or out to find God, who is distinct from us and from this universe, became flesh. It wasn't God visiting a human body, like a spirit in a machine. When John speaks sarks, speaks flesh, he's speaking of Jesus becoming human. Jesus became Jesus became human. God wasn't pretending to be human. He wasn't teleporting into a human body. But Jesus, the Word, became flesh. And this is a huge shift in the story of God and how he relates to his people. It's a huge change. Now, remember, God always has sought relationship with his creation. He always interacted with his human beings. He even revealed himself to Moses and to others throughout the scripture. But up until this point of the word becoming flesh, God's presence was spirit. Jesus' presence was in the, in the spoken act of, of, of creation in this world. And now, that's a limited form. But now, when the word becomes flesh, we see that Jesus, who has always existed as spirit, has now become human. And this should be worthy of pause. If you know some of the Old Testament, you know there's, there's a moment where, where God gives a glimpse of his presence to Moses. And if you know that story, those that were around and knew that this was happening, they were so blown away that they paused, that they began to worship. They couldn't just go on with the normal day because the living God revealed just a, just a sliver of himself to Moses. And they stopped everything. How much more for us that the God of the universe didn't just give us a glimpse, but the word became flesh. That ought to cause us pause. It's the kind of pause that has brought many of us into faith in Jesus. When you, when you really think about that. Now, if our Christmas stories have God plus Mary equals baby, new baby, new savior, it doesn't carry with it the same reality of depth of the living God who has always existed, always created the wisdom personified in this world, rational reason in this world, the, the active, redemptive realities of God creating in this world, that same God now comes as flesh. The word became flesh. First truth of 114 is Jesus became. The second truth is that Jesus lived. Look how the text continues. And he made his dwelling among us. The word for dwelling among us literally means tabernacled or lived in a tent. Again, we've got to go back to some Old Testament to understand, but this is a very intentional choice of language for John. John is calling to mind something very familiar to Jewish readers. 
See, after Israel left Egypt, God had Moses set up a tent, and it tells us in Exodus 25 that, that God wanted to dwell in their midst. The people have been delivered from, from slavery. They're now in it. And, and, and he tells Moses, make a tent for me. Make a tabernacle for me. And it will be a physical reminder to the people who I am. It's in that tent that we read God often manifested himself in a shining cloud that the Jews called the glory. He could not be seen. His glory was veiled by a cloud, but it was there and he was present. God was on the journey with his people. They could see the tent, and when they saw the tent, they knew that, that it was a sign of God being with him, with them, and near his people. And they would take this tent with them wherever they went. Where they went, God would go. It was a physical reminder of God to the people of God. And when you really reflect on this, God was so veiled in that. I mean, I think it's mind-blowing at one sense that the God of the universe, even in a veiled presence through a cloud or under a canvas tent, a symbolic presence, a symbolic uh, fixture of his presence, that even in that sense, God was desiring to be with his people. He came to his people. But there, that veil, that veil is changing in verse 14, because we see how this tabernacle language elevates, elevates the way God connects with his people to what we have the opportunity to experience now. That a God who has always been with his people is now not found in a canvas tent. He doesn't have to be carried around as a symbol. As great as some symbols are in your home that remind you of God, those are only symbols in a New Testament world. We don't have instructions that say, do this in your home, set up some candles, and it will be God's as a reminder of God's presence. Why not? Because the word became flesh and set up a tabernacle in us, among us. His dwelling has come to us. So God's presence that was once found in the symbolic nature of a tent is now found in the person of God becoming flesh and setting up shop among us. Eugene Peterson's translation of this text said, and, and he moved into the neighborhood. It was that physical. It was that different. And this is worthy of a pause. A God that sets up to dwell, to tabernacle with his people in the flesh. This is Christmas. This is a Christmas about a God who comes in flesh to be with you and me. And he doesn't just come to visit us. He doesn't just come to give us a sign. He sets up a permanent residence that changes everything. When I was a junior in high school, my mom got remarried to my stepdad, who, who was still my stepdad. He was here at the 9 o'clock service. I remember the first time she went on a date with him, or early on into their dating, he had a sailboat, and he needed some help with something. So my brother and I in high school went down to this boat, and he said, I can't pick this, I don't even remember what it was, but if you guys could help me move it from here to there. And, and I realized he really didn't need our help, he just wanted to score points with her kids. Because I got a $50 bill for doing nothing. I really liked him from day one. Um, <laughs> but over the course of their dating, ben, ben was slowly becoming more and more frequent with us. And, and there were rhythms we had. He would come over for Sunday after church. We'd all go to church. We'd meet at church. He'd come over. We'd have lunch. 
we would do different outings together, but he never lived with us, right? It was was always this occasional presence that over time we became, we were getting to know each other. But but then they got married, and he moved in. And I got to tell you, his presence disrupted everything, right? The way we had done family to that point was was the way we did family. Mom, two teenage boys. We had our rhythms. We had the ways in which we eat food and how we leave dishes and when we clean and when we don't clean and what relaxation looks like. And now this presence comes and moves into our home. And he hadn't been there before. It was somebody we visited, somebody we saw from time to time on occasion. But when he moved in, everything changed. And it, and it was disruptive in one sense at the beginning, but it didn't take me long to figure out that it was the disruption we needed. Because our home was always intended to function this way. God's intention for a family was being realized for us in his presence. And yes, it was disruptive, and he was never there before, but he moved from being this occasional person we saw from time to time to moving in, and his presence was felt, his presence was known, and it disrupted everything in all the right ways. Brothers and sisters, this is what John is saying. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus has moved in. He has come to dwell among us, to tabernacle in us. He is real. He is present. He is not a God who just comes and goes at an occasional level. He has come in flesh and blood, and he's moved into our lives and into our hearts, and he wants to disrupt everything about our lives in all the right ways. Because I think what we find for many of us who follow Jesus, who who move from just having an occasional relationship with God or a a time-to-time understanding of God, but when he really moves in and we center our lives in the reality of Jesus, you realize that you're actually living the way you were always intended to live. And it reorders everything. It reorders the way I view money and the way I treat my waitress and waiter, and it, 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 it disrupts the way we think about our time and what our values are. It disrupts what I think is to be really achieved in life and what is to be given away in life. Like, Jesus moves in and he reorients everything, but he does that from such a personal place that his presence is there. So Jesus became, the word became flesh. Jesus lived, he dwelled among us. I hope that causes you pause this week. That what we celebrate at Christmas isn't isn't a distant God. God who dropped in for a while. But a God who has come and moved in to dwell among us. That he is real, he is present, he is here. And when we awaken to this truth, the change that can come into our lives can be disruptive in all the right ways. Final truth of this text is notice the text goes on and it shows us that Jesus revealed. So Jesus became, Jesus lived, and now Jesus revealed. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. On on Thursday, Greg and I got together uh, to talk about this text and just to catch up a little bit. And you can just hear him. He goes, Jeff, do you see what's happening here? I can do a great Greg, but I'll do it another time. He goes, John is exploding. John is, he's not just giving a theological paper about the word becoming flesh. He's exploding. He's saying, and we've seen his glory. The glory of Jesus, the Son of God. 
And he's full of grace and truth. He goes, this just leaps off the page. It's, it's not a theological position. It's John's testimony at this point. This is him communicating that Jesus literally became flesh, moved and dwelled among John, and John saw the glory of God through the person, the human of Jesus. And this is scandalous, just as scandalous as Sark's. Because when we really reflect on that the glory of God can be seen through the person of Jesus, that, that should do what the prologue of John is supposed to do. It's supposed to draw us in to say, tell me more about this. How is it possible? That the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything has been made, that's the Word, and now this Word becomes flesh, and by the way, I've seen it. I've seen His glory. Tell me more. It, it should make us want to keep reading the story in John to learn more about who this Jesus is that John has experienced the glory of God through. There's so much more to understand. Jesus revealed Himself and His glory to other flesh in His flesh. Jesus was not invisible, nor was He obscure. Jesus revealed. The word glory refers to the visible manifestation of God's presence and power. Jesus was not a philosophy. Jesus was not a subject to study. Jesus is the word that became flesh. And John saw him. John touched him and experienced him as the revealed Jesus of both God and man. Because Jesus reveals See, when you look at Jesus, you see the face of God. When you hear Jesus teach, you hear God teach. When you come to experience Jesus, you experience God. In Jesus, we see God because Jesus reveals the glory of God. Jesus became flesh, Jesus has moved in, and Jesus is going to show us who God is in this world. He reveals. Because what's so amazing is we can read John's testimony here, and as Greg said, it explodes off the page when we can see it that way. But the truth is, many of you, this truth isn't limited to John's experience of Jesus. Your lives explode off the page saying, I've seen it too. Let me tell you my story of God's glory. Let me tell you the, the time in my life where, where God showed up and he moved into my life and he revealed to me who he is and my life has been changed. In my own story, whether it be, whether it be divorce or, or, or injury or loss, I as well have my own story of seeing God's glory. I'm blown away. I, I'm rarely on Facebook. And when I am, I am most drawn to seeing what's going on with former high school friends of mine and classmates. And this last summer, we were in Ojai out to dinner with my family, and I saw a classmate that I had grown up with since fourth grade. Now, if you would have asked me a week before about this person and said, do you think they're following Jesus? I said, there's no way. I mean, there's just no way. And the guy comes up to you and goes, Jeff, uh, I go to this church, and by the way, me and we listen to your sermons all the time. And I said, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, and then this person and this person and this person. And well, all I can say is that God is still in the business of revealing who he is to people so that people can become alive to God. In two weeks, we're going to have an all-church service at 10 a.m. we got five people being baptized. The very act of baptism is declaring, I've seen it. I've seen the glory of God. It's not just an intellectual fact or a neat little piece of Bible trivia that the Word became flesh and has dwelled among us and in dwelling among us, tabernacled in us, I have seen the glory of God. 
And this is what Christmas is about. The Word becoming flesh and the Word, Jesus, revealing the glory of God. My question for you and for me is can we slow down enough to really let that soak in? Or are we moving way too fast? Or do we have our Christmas narratives that are already formed in which we don't really take Jesus back that far so the beauty of this can be lost on us? So how might we apply these truths of Jesus became, Jesus lived, and Jesus revealed? I have three thoughts for you, and the first one is this. Recognize that Jesus is bigger than a Christmas story or a tradition. Jesus is here. Jesus is real. Jesus is not a story. He has a story. And what's so amazing about the story of Jesus, if you keep reading in John, is that he wants you and me a part of his story. His story invites us to be a part of it so that we, like John, can say, I've seen it. I've seen his glory. It's full of grace. It's full of truth. It's not a story that was limited in time. It's a story that continues to unfold. All of creation is going to explode like John to say, I have seen his glory. So again, in my own life, whether it's my parents' divorce, serious physical injuries, heartbroken, failure, death, I have seen the glory of God. And you are sitting among many in this room who say, I've seen it too. That at the lowest point in my life or when it seemed like there was no hope or it looked like everything wasn't going to make sense, that that the word became flesh and dwelt among you in a way that awakened you to the glory of God and it reoriented everything, disrupted your life in all the right ways. So this Christmas, know that Jesus is bigger than a Christmas story or simply a tradition. Because the second point is this, Jesus is up close and personal. One of the most foundational truths of what we have read in verse 14 is that Jesus is not a distant God. Jesus is not a God that we work to get close to. It seems to me that all the other religions and philosophies in this world have the pressure being on you and me to get close enough, to know enough, to learn enough, to be enlightened enough. To, to memorize enough or to, to unmemorize or unfilter enough that we've got to do a whole lot of work to get to a place to get closer to the philosophy, to get closer to the God. And what we see is that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Christmas and Christianity is about a God that we don't work to get closer to. It's a God who did all the work to get close to us. That is Christmas. Jesus tabernacles in us. He sets up among us and in us. He is here. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a faithful part of Lake Avenue Church, my question is, does this motivate you? Does this wake you up this season? Is it louder than the list you have? Is it louder than the grocery shopping that needs to get done? Is it louder than all the things that come this time of year? That what we celebrate this time of year is that the Word has become flesh and dwells among us and we can see the glory of God through this gift of Jesus. Because for all of us, for you, for me, for any human being that has lived, will live, is living, that all of this is motivated because Christmas is about us. Christmas is about the celebration of the Word becoming flesh, dwelling among us. Because that's how wild Jesus is about us. All this for you and for me to be in relationship with God. All this 
so that God will tabernacle, set up, move into your life, reorient everything. It's certainly worthy of all of these lights. It's certainly worthy of all these rich songs that we sing. Christmas is about the Word who becomes flesh, who is so up close and personal with his people that this final point is this. Did you, did you, did you get the, the impact of Jesus becoming flesh is this, is that he gets it. Jesus gets you. Jesus fully understands what it means to be a human being because he became human. Jesus understands our pain. Jesus wasn't visiting flesh, he became flesh. Jesus is more than just proximate with us, not a tent that we center around. He's intimate with us. The intimacy of Jesus is an intimacy of understand that we have a Jesus who understands our emotions, who understands the human experience. He identifies us with us in our pain, in our joy, in all of it. It's not a transcendent reality. We have to kind of lose all of our earthly stuff to get away that this isn't the real world and that the real enlightenment is up here. No, Jesus is, is here. He's real. He's moved in. He's tabernacled in. And so he fully gets it. He understands. He understands. Some of you are so incredibly lonely right now. Jesus gets it. Some of you are in such deep grief right now. There's plenty to grieve in this church with the loss of such beautiful lives. Such faithful lives. Jesus understands that grief. Some of you, life is awesome right now. Jesus gets that too. He understands your joy. He's proud of your accomplishment. He celebrates your bonus. He's thrilled with the way your family's working out. He gets it. So the lows of this life and the highs of this life, that's Jesus the word became flesh, dwelled among us. He understands. He understands love. He understands the lost. He, lo he understands when love is lost. He understands heartbreak. And this is why Christmas is so powerful. It's not that God and Mary had a baby. It's that word became flesh. So the baby that came is the same God who created everything, who has always existed, now becoming flesh, because he's an up-close-and-personal God who gets it. And he gets you, and he understands you, and no matter what your biggest failure is or your biggest regret, he gets it. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, because he gets it, and he finds a way to forgive it, to redeem it, to have it all make some kind of sense, because he cares that much about you. He cares that much about me. There's a, an image I've carried for many years about how I understand my relationship with God. And when I was in youth group, some of you are my age, there was a famous song that we sang all the time. I don't, I don't think I love it, but Jeremy, remember that big house song? It talked about God having a big house with lots and lots of rooms. And I think, I, think, I mean, that's how sophisticated the lyrics are, seriously, lots and lots of rooms. Um, but as, a, as, a, as a, a teenager who became a follower of Jesus, this idea was super helpful to me. And I've always pictured this, this big home that God owns and it has an address and it's a child, I'm a child of God and, and in this household I have a space, I have a room. Um, I, 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 my identity comes from that. I, it's a place I belong. I, I know whose house it is. I know that I don't own it. I, for years, identified with this idea that in this massive house that God has, I have a room. I have vicinity to God. I'm his. But not many years ago, 
through an incredible relationship with someone I've lost this last year. He challenged me to stop thinking about having a room in the house and experience the Jesus who comes into my room and sits on my bed and creates relationship with me. And as a kid who didn't have a dad that did that, that's a, that's a tough thought to wrap your brain around. What do you mean, a, a God that comes into my room and wants to dialogue? I mean, I, I belong, and I do all these cool things for God. I mean, when I go out, I let everybody know where I live, what I'm about, who I am, and I got a room here, and you should get a room too. But I've moved in my understanding of Jesus from vicinity to God to intimacy with God, and I now can give testimony that I know what it means that the Word became flesh and dwells among us, not dwells around us dwells in us. And that's my Christmas prayer for anyone who's hearing this, is that this Christmas, the power of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and pointing us, revealing, us to, the, revealing to us the glory of God would be your Christmas story. That you would understand that Jesus became flesh and blood and has moved into your, to your neighborhood, into your room, into your life. And this is worth a pause. Because like any good pause, all of this is motivated by extraordinary love. An extraordinary loving Father, an extraordinary loving God who wants to be in intimacy with you and me, his creation. See, Christmas is a time where we celebrate that the abstract was made concrete, that the invisible was made visible, that the intangible was made touchable, And this is what Christmas is. Christmas is a celebration of the moment when the Word became flesh. And when you think about it, he could have come any way he wanted. And he does throughout the Scripture. He comes in all kinds of different images. But at Christmas and what we celebrate and what we worship and what we allow to change our lives is that he came as flesh. I want to give you this moment to pause. Jeremy and... Rebecca, I've chosen a song that helps us to do that reflection. I've chosen a song that will help us pause to reflect because I know what the rest of your day is. I've got one too. But to soak in this pause in such a way that when you leave here that maybe the 24th, 25th are just much more deeper and more fuller because of the reality of the word becoming flesh. So reflect during this song. Tidal wave Or an ocean 
to the earth.